Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Earlier today, I was taking my daughters outside, and as I was taking them outside, I just thought of one more thing to clean up in the house, another thing to take outside, and then ran back in to take one more item in. And my three-year-old says, Mama, stop getting distracted. (laughs) To which I just started laughing because she said that a few times recently. I don't know where she's getting these distraction comments, but it's that, let me just get one more thing done before I try to do something else. And... It's reminding me of how important it is not just to stay on task for myself, but for my kids to see the importance of not getting distracted, especially in a culture where we have so many pings and dings and technology, and it's easy to be pulled in different directions. Now, maybe this is also you struggle with in the workplace. Joining me today is Nir Isle. He's the author of the book, Indistractable. Fantastic book. I highly recommend the read. And he has strategies to help us stop distracting ourselves and others in the workplace, especially if perhaps you have a team and you want them to really get things done, but you might not realize some of your basic expectations in the day are actually preventing the people on your team, those under you, from getting work done. Not to mention yourself if this is a standard set for you. So here is Nir Isle joining me to help us with some strategies to stop distracting ourselves and others in the workplace. Nir, welcome back to Trending. Thanks so much. So great to be back. You recently put a tweet up, well, whatever you call it now that it's on X, uh, with four questions to ask yourself if you're distracting people in the workplace. I really love these, and I'd love to dive into what they are because I think most people have these expectations of themselves and others in the workplace. And then what are the strategies to get things changed so that we're not distracted or distracting others? So what are those questions, and what do we need to do? Sure. So let me ask you some questions just to just to ponder for yourself. I'm not uh, casting any blame or uh, trying to make <laughs> anyone feel guilty. But if you want to see if you're the type of person who creates a distractible environment, ask yourself, do you ever expect near immediate responses to emails? Are you that kind of person who says, you know, who, who writes back and says, I just wanted to make sure you saw my last email? <laughs> Have you ever sent that message? I do uh, that, do but it's check-ins? usually days later. <laughs> Okay. All right. Good, good. How about this one? Do you plan check-ins around your schedule without considering other employees' schedules, for example? Uh, Then finally, do you ever plan, quote-unquote, brainstorming sessions with no agenda? Well, these Mm -hmm. can be just a few of the questions that you might ask yourself to see if you are creating an environment of distraction. And the good news is that we can create an indistractable workplace environment, not only if you're managing others, but in fact, you can manage up. You can manage your manager to help create a more indistractable workplace. And we could talk about that as well. 
I think all of these hit the nail on the head of things that can be very frustrating uh, in the workplace. And it's not just brainstorming sessions, but it's, let's have maybe a regular meeting that's always on the calendar, but it never has mm -hmm. an agenda. And so you don't get anything done. Or like you said, the email, the expectation of immediate responses and how that can actually cause stress. It's funny. They're actually about maybe two or three people I know within the work environment that if I receive an email from them, I need to just respond to it immediately. But for the most part, mm. other than that, I try not to set that standard for myself because sometimes, dear, wouldn't you say it's not just the standards other people are setting, but even the standards you're setting for yourself in the workplace as well, the meeting for the sake of the meeting or the immediate response right. for your efficiency and uh, dependency even. Yeah, so I would say it's almost always you. That's doing it. It's, you know, it's funny. I, I had a client uh, a few weeks ago who came to me with this terrible problem. He said, you know, look, uh, my my chief legal counsel, and this is a, at a tech company, so my chief legal counsel is always distracted. You know, he works in-house and he's complaining to me about how he can't get work done. He can't create these, these very technical contracts. He can't focus because people are constantly distracting him. What do I do? So I, I said, you know, let, let's try an experiment. That, that, that employee has an assistant. Let's get the assistant to screen out the really uh, the, the super urgent things that he has to do right now versus the things that are just distraction that can wait. So day one comes by, and this lawyer notices that nothing urgent happened, no distraction, that the assistant didn't come interrupt him all day long for anything really urgent. So he <laughs> says, you know, did, did you understand the assignment? Did you, did you get what we're trying to do here? I need you to come get me if something urgent happens. He <laughs> says, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, nothing was uh, that urgent. Okay, well, all right, fine. Day one. Day two rolls around. Also, no interruptions. Day three rolls around. No interruptions. It turns out there weren't real interruptions. There were just the this perception in his head that things were that urgent. There was nothing that actually couldn't wait an hour or 45 minutes until he had time for that focused work and then get to that that other matter. It was, it was just the, his perception that people would be upset at him that he constantly needed to, to respond to every ping, ding, and ring, which actually brings me to the question – when you say that there are certain people in your life that you have to respond to right away, what would happen if you responded to them within 30 minutes after you finished a work block, for example? Totally with you. When I say respond to them right away, I have my work blocks for email. So I don't mm. have notification where if the email comes in right now, I respond. It's if I go to check my email and it's there from that person, I prioritize checking that particular email and then responding to it if it needs to be. So in general, I'm not sitting here looking at my email because I implode mm. if I do near. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you've utilized the tactics in the book, Indistractable. I love it. So okay, so you're saying what? So you you have your work block time when you work with that distraction or spend time with your kid or or, or do whatever it is that you're doing. But then you're saying when you do get to email that is in your calendar to check email, they are priority to, to respond to. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. it, Got it. That, that's fantastic. Okay. I, I wanted to make sure they weren't interrupting your other work. Yeah, no, no, thankfully, no, I don't. And, and that's sometimes the hard part, though, for me is you jump into your email maybe at the beginning of starting a task. And that mm -hmm. prevents getting that task done if all of a sudden I'm checking my email instead. So that's where I'm a little bit weak sometimes as I start checking my email instead of starting a task. But for the most part, I try to keep it in those time blocks. But I would love to hear what some of these areas are for getting over demanding from yourself or others an immediate response or kind of circling back around within maybe even 20 minutes or an hour saying, hey, did you just see my last email? Uh, what do we need yeah. to do to make sure we aren't setting these expectations for other people in the workplace and ourselves? 
Absolutely. Okay. So let, let's look at it from two perspectives. We're going to look at it from the manager's perspective, and then we're going to look at it from the employee's perspective. So from a manager's perspective, what I did in my 10 years of research is I looked for companies that are indistractable. I look for the kind of companies that people can work to their best abilities because they can do so without constant interruptions. And so the common traits of indistractable workplaces are number one, they give people psychological safety, meaning that you can talk about the problem. The problem with distraction at work is that you can't talk about the problem of distraction at work. You see, it's not the technology, it's not the pings and dings, it's the fact that you can't raise your hand and say, hey boss, if you constantly interrupt me every 30 seconds, I can't get my work done. That's the problem. And so if you can't talk about this problem, this very simple problem, there's probably all kinds of other skeletons in the closet you can't talk about either. So that's number one. You have to give people the ability to talk about this problem without fear of getting fired. Step number two is that you have to give people a forum to talk about this problem. So at some companies, they have, <clears throat> excuse me, they have these regular meetings. At some companies, they actually have a, a Slack channel where they talk about the problem over text message, where they, they have all kinds of different issues that they can bring up about the company. It's not important that the that company management solves every problem. It's important that employees feel like they have a forum to talk about these kinds of problems, whether it's problems about distraction or any other problem, because you can't solve a problem unless we talk about it and solve it together in the company. And then third, and most importantly, is that companies that are indistractable have leadership that displays what it means to be indistractable. So you can't think that your workforce is gonna stay on task and not get distracted by every little ping, ding, and ring if when you have a meeting with your with your employees, you're sitting there with a phone in your hand while you're nodding and saying, uh-huh, 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 and meanwhile, you're looking at your phone. Mm -hmm. So it's, and this is, by the way, the same advice I give to parents who tells me, oh, you know, oh, my kids won't stop playing video games. They're so distracted by social media. And meanwhile, they're telling me this while, while they're checking their work email. We can't be hypocrites. If you are in a leadership mm -hmm. position as a parent or as an employee employer, you have to set the example. You have to show others what it means to be indistractable, which means you need to follow these principles that I talk about in this book so that it's okay for everyone in the company to follow them as well. Now, that's what that's just very, very quickly what you could do as a, as a manager. As an employee, what you can do is to manage your manager, to manage up. Now, there is a, a, a really groundbreaking practice that is, is so simple but so effective. Uh, it's called schedule syncing. Schedule syncing is when you print out your week ahead. And we talked about this in a previous episode about how important time boxing is, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. So what I want you to do is for the week ahead, sit down and make your schedule for your working hours. Make, make the schedule for how you plan to spend your time. Okay, I want this much time for emails. Here's the meetings I need to attend. Here's the big projects I need to work on. And then what I want you to do is to set just 10 minutes aside for a meeting with your boss. Say, boss, can I have 10 minutes of your time Monday morning? I want to sit down with you. And when you do, you're going to show them this time box calendar. You're going to show, okay, see boss, here's where I have time for my emails. Here's the meeting you asked me to attend. Here's that big project you asked me to work on, et cetera. Now look at this other piece of paper here. On this other piece of paper, I put down all the things that you've asked me to do that I'm having trouble fitting into my calendar. Now what this does, it avoids having you take uh, having you uh, follow the worst piece of productivity advice. The worst piece of productivity advice that we've all heard ad nauseum is if you want to be more productive, you have to learn how to say no. <laughs> that is 
horrible advice. If you tell your boss no, you're going to get fired. That's stupid advice. Only a, a tenured college professor would, would give you that kind of advice because they can't get fired. The rest of us would get fired <laughs> if we tell our boss no. You don't tell your boss no. You ask your boss to do their most important job subtly, which is prioritization. That is your boss's most important job, helping you prioritize. So when you show your boss, here's my time box schedule for the week, and here's this list of things that I couldn't fit into my time box schedule, help me prioritize, they're going to look at that calendar and say, you know what? You really don't need to be at that meeting on Friday. That other thing on that piece of paper, that's much more important. Can you swap mm -hmm. that out? They will worship the ground you walk on because they don't have much exposure in ter terms of how you're spending your time and they don't want to micromanage you. So by proactively showing your boss, here's my focused work time when I will be doing a task without distraction, that's how you're earning that right to not be interrupted, to not be mm -hmm. constantly checked up on. So this is how you manage up. You do a schedule sync. By the way, not only is this incredibly helpful in the workplace, it changed my marriage because there were so <laughs> many tasks that I, as a father, was letting fall through the cracks that, and my, my wife was getting upset at me saying, hey, don't you see our, our, our daughter, uh, you know, she, her room needs to be cleaned up or the trash needs to be taken out or the dishes need to be washed. Why don't you do this stuff? And I was just saying, well, honey, you know, if you want me to do something, just, just ask me. What's the big deal? Just ask me. Well, of course, what I was doing was asking her to take on yet another job. I was asking her to be my camp counselor. Well, now we do a schedule sync. Every Sunday evening, we sit mm -hmm. down, we look at each other's calendars, and we make sure that we know who's doing what for the week. It has absolutely improved our 23-year marriage. It's unbelievably effective both in the workplace and at home. I love Sunday sync ups. My husband and I do them and we feel it when we don't do the Sunday sync up. Those moments where it's like, I'm too tired. It's Sunday night. We'll just do it on Monday and then maybe it doesn't happen. It's a world of difference in the family, but also at work. And I love that you mentioned that because I know a lot of people are imploding right now. There's a lot of understaffing in many companies today and people are looking for everything from raises to additional help and I think this time blocking calendar and schedule syncing with your boss if you need to make some changes because of distraction because of a too big of a workload or even if maybe you're wanting additional help or looking for a raise it allows for that room for conversation of here's what I'm actually achieving here's what is maybe not fitting into the schedule and like you said it addresses the issues of too high of an expectation in terms of timeliness with email, too many meetings. I think all of these are so key for allowing us to better communicate so that distraction can be pushed out of the way. So I think these are great solutions, Nir. And I love that you give it from a managerial perspective for creating that open space for discussing the problem of distraction, but also the managing up, managing your manager, scheduling that sink in. If you're an employee who's trying to really distribute the distractions out of the way in your day. Near, there are so many topics, I think, on this topic of distraction. I love your book, Indistractable. If you're just joining me now, Near Isle is here with me. He's the author of the book, Indistractable. We posted a link online if you'd like to pick it up. And he can be found at nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R and far.com, where you can find his books and some of his great articles there as well. Coming up, we're going to dive into the role of virtue in keeping yourself from distraction. When I read Nier's book for the first time at the core, I kept thinking this is all about virtue without mentioning virtue. So I'm excited, Nier, to dive into the role of virtue in the work of distraction that is so common today for people of all ages.
know what's trending. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. We had some friends over for dinner last night, and we were discussing the challenge of working that one of my friends has with working with everything from college to 30-something-year-olds. And he kept commenting that they have no virtue. They can't be relied upon. They're easily distracted, and he just hates working with them. And it's sad. It's sad that there's that level of normalcy in the youngest of our workforce today. And he kept saying the thing that needs to change is they need virtue. They need to know um, responsibility. They need to know self-control, temperance, prudence. They don't even know what a virtue is. And ironically, my guest today is Nir Isle. He's the author of the book, Indistractable. And the big bell that was ringing in my mind is I kept thinking, how can kids know, and not even just kids, but we're actually talking about adults here. How can adults know how what virtue is or how to exercise it in a culture that it's so normative to be flooded with distractions and we've not given any skills to stop that and that's what i love about near's work because near your book is all about seeking virtue without mentioning that this is what is being discussed and this is what's being struggled when it comes when it comes to distraction, because you wrote this completely from a secular perspective. But when I think about Aristotle and what he says about how a virtuous person is a person of excellence when it comes to reason and character, I think combating distraction is very reasonable and usually lends itself to very reasonable uh, solutions. And that's what I love about your work. So I'd love to dive in a little bit from the perspective of virtue and how that helps us to focus immensely when it comes to the work we're doing. I was recently reading a story earlier today near, and it was from Bloomberg, that Americans are spending more time on the weekends looking at screens uh, than they are spending time with people. And it made me think about the distraction crisis and how, in many respects, it's connected to this culture of loneliness and that we're prioritizing or just not prioritizing anything, and we're missing out on friendships because we're not prioritizing them. And tying this into the topic of virtue, because I'd love to hear your thoughts here. When we discuss distraction, we discuss virtue hand in hand. When we look at what virtue is, Aristotle talks a lot about how virtue centers around people and our interactions with them, and not just simply these singular actions that we get done. And so when we throw into the conversation about distraction, the fundamental role of people I think that starts to give a little more purpose to people who are saying, hey, I'm lonely or, hey, I'm imploding the workplace because they need human connection. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sure, absolutely. So so maybe we'll start with some definitions. So w- what is virtue? The definition of virtue is a quality or trait deemed as morally good. Now, I think the, the purpose of a virtue is that virtues inform your values. What are values? Values, my definition, are attributes of the person you want to become. Values are attributes of the person you want to become. Now, how do you figure out what your values are? How do you figure out what someone else's values are? There's only two places you look. You look at how you spend your money and how you spend your time. That is how you know your values, right? The attributes of the person you want to become. You don't look at the, you don't listen to what people say. That's meaningless. You look at what they do with their money and their time. And so what I want to help people do 
is to help them live out those values. Now, I'm not qualified to tell you what your virtues should, what what, what you should deem as morally good. There, there are other much more qualified people to tell you what what is morally good. That's up for you to decide. What I want you to fi- to do is to spend your time, your life, the way you want to not go to your deathbed with regrets. That's what I'm trying to fundamentally prevent. And frankly, I I think that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine were trying to do as well. They were trying to warn people that a life well-lived requires certain virtues and values. And to do that, when we live our life according to our values, we are assured of not having those regrets. So what I want to help people do is to live the kind of life that they decide for themselves, not that the media decides for them, not that their friends decide for them, not that the big tech companies decide for them, but that they spent their time, this precious time that they have on earth, the way they wanted to. And the way we do that is by turning our values into time. We turn our values into time. So I want to see on your schedule, what is it that you value? If you value physical health, if that's one of your values, do you have time on your schedule for exercise, for a bedtime? You know, I used to tell my daughter all the time, you need to go to bed, it's your bedtime. And then one day she said, daddy, what's your bedtime? And she was absolutely right. I was a hypocrite. I didn't have a bedtime. Now I have a bedtime because getting quality rest and taking care of my body, that's one of my values. For spiritual health, do you have time in your day for prayer and meditation? Is that part of your day or is it just something you say? Uh, when it comes to other things that you enjoy, the, the the person you want to become, does the person you want to become spend time with their loved ones? Or is it just something that they get to, you know, they get some time here and there, some scraps of what's left over at the end of the day, right? Or do you schedule that time with your kids, with your parents, with your siblings, with your community members? Is that in your schedule? And then finally, when it comes to our workplace, you know, uh, we, we have to schedule that time for work. But is the per- does the person that you want to become in the workplace, is that the kind of person who's constantly doing reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to whatever's happening in the news? Or is, are you the kind of person who puts time aside to do the kind of focused work that can only be done without distraction, the planning, the strategizing, the thinking? If you don't make that time in your day, if you don't keep that time sacred, I promise you, you're going to run real fast in the wrong direction. So it's really about informing your values based on virtues and then turning your values into time by making that time box calendar. I love that saying. And from your book, I've repeated it often, turn your values into time. I think that's so key. And it's all about calendar. And it's difficult. I'm just going to throw out there because I know there are uh, groups of people where your time is in some ways being bombed. I know I'm in a season of life. I have two little girls and a toddler that's three and a one-year-old and their needs come first. And so if something's going on, you know, I'm fully home with them. That that bombs my, my day. And so I've had to adjust a little bit how I run that time-blocked calendar and find flexibility and allow some grace right. for distraction. But if you have it, your priorities in order, if you understand what your values are, but also what some of those tasks are, it leaves room for following what is valuable to you. And for you know people who are listening, their faith, that's why they're listening to Catholic radio. And part of mm-hmm. that virtue that I think is so key are really two of them. When I was reading your book, I've always thought this, that temperance and prudence are key. Temperance is mm-hmm. really what helps us in uh, seeking after pleasure, but with reason. St. Thomas Aquinas refers to that, that we need 
reason when it comes to pleasure. And so the role that temperance plays is delaying and planning our pleasure, essentially, but with the right reason, a reason accordance with uh, our state in life, with our responsibilities, so that we actually meet our needs and our responsibilities, but we can actually enjoy things. And that's much of what your book is about, Nir. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So, so temperance again. I, you know, I'm a big word nerd, so I like to look up definitions. So, temperance. We don't really use that word that much anymore. Uh, but, but the definition is delaying immediate pleasure for a longer term reward. That's really what temperance is all about. Today, we might call it self control or willpower, but that that it, it can be someone's values. That that should be your values. Actually, is is delaying that immediate short term pleasure for some kind of higher purpose for some longer term reward. And so the, 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 the motto that I oftentimes repeat is that you can have it all, just not all at once. So I think part of the mistake that people make is that they think that they have to do it all at once. I have to you know, be great at my job, and I have to be a wonderful parent, and I need to write that novel, and I need to be politically active, and I, all these things all at the same time. And you can do all those things, but you can't do them all at once. You, you have to be prudent. This is exactly, you, know, you, you mentioned the word prudence as well. And so this prudence is about doing the right thing at the right time. It's not that you can't do these things. You can, you just can't do them all at once. So for example, you know, when it comes to being with your children, I'm not saying this is, this is, this is happening to you, but I've heard this from, from many parents I've worked with over the years, is that they think that they're going to be productive that day. But meanwhile, their top priority, their top value is taking care of their kids. Yes. And so when the kids need them, they feel like they failed in not yeah. doing some work-related task. Well, again, you can't do it all at once. So if the primary objective, if your primary value, if what you think is virtuous, is morally good for the day is to spend time with your family, that's it. That's yeah. it. Yeah. If you just did that, you were available for your children from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. on a Saturday. If that's what you said you were going to do, don't have any expectation to even touch anything else, right? It's okay if you didn't clean the house. It's yeah. okay if you didn't do work-related stuff because you said in advance that this time is set aside for my children and do it with 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 with, with all the grace that you can give yourself because that is what it, you're doing in accordance with your values. Mm. You remind me of a friend I talked to a couple weeks ago. She's in the thick of a couple younger toddlers as well, and she was sharing how much she struggles because she has ADHD. And so she feels like she needs to be productive. And she's sharing about everything, you know, she's doing with her kids throughout the day. And I'm thinking, man, you're feeding your kids, you're nourishing them. They're so joy-filled, yet she's struggling to feel productive. And so she said, I feel like I just need to leave the house for a little bit uh, to feel as if I do something. Yet what you're saying is so key because I think the problem is, is that if you're in that type of season where you're with children and like you said, your goal is to take care of your kids and be with them from nine to five. If you don't get other things done, that's okay. Your value of productivity was based on how you were meeting that time with your child rather than maybe being overwhelmed and emotionally distraught over the fact that you maybe didn't get the house perfectly cleaned or didn't get to the grocery store or whatever those other things are that do need to get done but didn't get done, yet you can have that appreciation for where you were and what you did accomplish. That's right. And so this is back to why time boxing is so important, because when you get off the to-do list mentality, the to-do list mentality rewards us for how many cute little boxes we checked off, right? <laughs> I clean the house and I wash the car and the kids are in bed and da, 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 all these things that we have to do, constantly checking off these little boxes. And that somehow gives us self-worth. That's a silly metric, right? Who cares? 
What we really want to do is, did we spend our time the way we want to, the way we said in advance helps us live in accordance to our values? That's what's important. So when we have a time box calendar and we say from this hour to this hour, I will do nothing but be with my kids, we have no expectations to do anything else. Then later in the day, we have that time scheduled when someone else is responsible for our children, right? Maybe it's our partner, maybe it's a family member. Someone else has as their top priority taking care of the kids so that my top priority can now be clean the house, do my work, whatever else might be. It's reminding me of a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. He says, temperance withdraws man from things which seduce the appetites from obeying reason. In other words, we have to practice and exercise temperance. And as Catholics, we pray for this gift as well to help us to refrain from those things that are seducing us from following what is reasonable. And what is reasonable is remembering, as you're saying, what these priorities are, what our values are that we've chosen, that we're seeking out, because otherwise this culture of productivity can get in the way. We do want to be productive, but what what are we being productive doing? What are we valuing as productive? And I think that's what's so key in this conversation. I really enjoyed how uh, the role of virtue works into distraction. Near, I love your book. I highly recommend it. If you ever read the book, let us know what your favorite part is, how it should change you. You can po- write us on social media. We've tagged Near, especially on Twitter. But if you want to pick up a copy, you can find it nearandfar.com. That's N-I-R and far.com. Thank you so much for being with me today, Near. Coming up, we're diving into the question that's ruminating right now as we're on the cusp of the 2024 Summer Olympics. Will Leah Thomas also formerly known as Will Thomas, compete in the 2024 Olympics. He's stepping into a legal battle ahead to try not only make it to the Olympics, but change some of the rules surrounding who can and cannot compete as a woman at the Olympic level. We'll be right back here on Trending. talking about what you're thinking about you're listening to trending with timory on relevant radio and the relevant radio app welcome back to trending the news broke this week that elon musk has shared that the first human patient to be a part of the trials for Neuralink has successfully, according to him, had a brain transplant. So we'll dive into that in just a little bit here on Trending. What is your comfort level with Neuralink? What do you think about you being able to operate a computer exclusively using your thoughts? I'll have more to say on this throughout the week, but I want to hear a little bit from you because I think it's an intriguing topic about the advancement in science and technology. And just because we can, does that mean we should? I think that's one of the questions, especially with the rise of this idea of transhumanism, uploading your brain to the computer. So much to be said. But first, I want to hear your thoughts. Do you think that will 
Thomas, also known by mainstream media and what he calls himself today, Leah Thomas, will compete in the 2024 Olympics. The Olympics are slated for this summer. I'm so excited. I actually enjoy watching swimming too, and he's competed as a swimmer. Uh, it begins July 26th and runs through August 11th. And just on a personal note, my hope and goal is to really actually watch the Olympics this year. Maybe I need to time block that on my calendar this year. Ever since I went to college, it's been really hard to watch the Olympics, especially with the fact that hardly anyone has like actual cable TV today. So you have to find different ways to stream uh, parts of the Olympics now. So if you have a recommendation, I highly am open to that. But let's talk a little bit about Will Thomas. You know his story, and he's a he, and that's what I'll refer to him by. I might slip here and there, but Will Thomas is a biological male, and he has been competing. He hasn't competed really much over the last couple of years uh, at the highest level when it comes to women's athletics and swimming. He identifies as a woman, and prior to identifying as a woman, if you did not know this, and I think this is really key, if you didn't, he ranked 462nd in men's swimming prior to competing against women as he identified as a woman. That's really key to this whole conversation because it's not fair what's happening. He competed at UPenn on the women's swimming team. Now, we've actually heard from his classmates, or sorry, not classmates, but specifically his teammates here on trending because the stories of people who have had to compete against him are startling. For example, being in a locker room uncomfortably with a man who, by the way, he says he's still attracted to women. And so when you have to strip down in and out of a bathing suit in a locker room, that's uncomfortable. Paula Scanlon shared her testimony here on Trending a couple months ago. We're going to link in the episode notes to her story. She's Catholic, and this goes against her views in so many ways. And she was in college, still trying to navigate what those exactly were and how to navigate this kindly, and then how to navigate it ethically, morally, from a perspective of safety, from a perspective of athletics. And she is one of the loud voices alongside Riley Gaines, who is speaking up against men in women's sports. At the end of the day, this is really what, what it's about. Just leave women alone. Like, leave women alone. Will Thomas is a man who ranked 462nd at UPenn when he was competing in men's swimming. He didn't rank. He ranked, but he didn't. Let's be fair here. Yet when suddenly he starts to compete against women, he won the, dub the NCAA Division I Championship in the 500-yard freestyle. He is literally leaving Olympic athletes in the dust with his records that he and other men competing against women in women's sports are breaking. But they're not breaking world records. They're breaking records as if they were women competing against other women. And so here's what's happening. He is now taking legal action. He has lawyered up and he is making his way to approach with a Canadian lawyer. They together are working to confront 
the Court of Arbitration for Sports. Because what happened right around when Will Thomas, referred to as Leah Thomas by himself, started hitting championships and breaking records, what happened around that same time is women's sports started to be in the limelight when it came to politics, but also fairness. And what happened in the end is we actually saw that there started to be standards set. For example, the International Olympics Committee ended up subscribing to a rule that was put forward by the World Aquatics that essentially set the rule And I think this is a pretty decent rule. It could be better, and I do have a problem with it. But the rule they set for who could and couldn't compete in women's sports was that if you went through male puberty, you could not compete in women's sports. So not only did you have to not go through a male puberty, but then you also had to maintain a certain low testosterone level. And so basically that really would make it so that any boy around the age of 12, if he wanted to compete against women in the long run, for example, one day in the Olympics, would have to start suppressing his hormones, start taking puberty-blocking drugs, and that's the standard. So it essentially has blocked men from competing for now against women, but here's the problem. The story, the language today surrounding the transgender movement is they're pushing trans identities on children. They believe that, for example, my three-year-old and one-year-old shouldn't be forced by me and my husband to go through the wrong puberty. Now, my husband and I are just letting nature take its course because that's what we've done for centuries when we recognize that there are differences between male and female and the bodies develop and function differently. And in fact, for a female, your whole health is really centered around whether or not your body goes through proper cycles and can ovulate and function in a cyclical phases that it's meant to cycle through. And so here we are, because I think this is a scary rule, but it's a good rule for now that it keeps men out of women's sports at the highest levels for the most part. However, it's not a good rule because it supports the idea that kids go through the wrong puberty and we should start blocking hormones from very young ages. So what's happening is Will Thomas, who calls himself Leah Thomas and claims he's a woman, is appealing this rule. So he's appealing this rule that the International Olympics Committee has adopted by the World Aquatics, and he's taking it to the Court of Arbitration for Sports. Now, they initially did not take up this request back in September, but now, lo and behold, it is being acknowledged and they will be moving forward. Here's the deal. The trials for the Olympic teams are this June. It's not expected that this will be resolved prior to the Olympic trials to determine who will be on the 2024 swim team for the United States. But he has said, Will Thomas, calling himself Lima Thomas, has made it very clear that his site is set on the Olympics. What do you think will happen? I'd love to hear from you. You can write to me trending at relevantradio.com. That's my email. Or you can go ahead and head over to social media. Just follow me at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E to share your thoughts. I don't think he'll compete. I think this is going to get very heated very quickly. And it'll be probably one of the leading stories over the next five months as people debate fairness, equality, human rights. But at the end of the day, I actually really liked a statement that 
Will Thomas's latest attorney released. He commented that Thomas essentially just wants things to be fair, proportionate, and grounded in human rights and in science. I am completely behind that. With that in mind, leave women alone, leave women's sports alone, follow the science. It's very clear that men are men, women are women, and the best psychological help, mental help that we could give someone is to actually stand true to the truth of the human body, the truth of the chromosomes, if there's any ambiguity or confusion, and find a path forward. And that's what's key, because we're not helping anyone, especially when I look at photos of Will Thomas prior to his transition to quote Leah Thomas, and I look at this normal, everyday, young college male, and it's sad to see not just what he has done to his body, but what the medical community has done to his body, what to the mental health community so-called professionals have done to his body, what UPenn has allowed to be done to his body and his sports career, what media has allowed and done to make him a billboard. This is someone who is struggling physically, emotionally, psychologically, and to just succumb and say, you know what? We should just let you go to the 2024 Olympic trials, and if you beat out women, you should go. It's not fair to women, but it's also not the kindest, most compassionate, and wholesome approach for helping Will Thomas, who calls himself Leah Thomas, move forward in his own life. Let's not turn him into a victim and cause an even greater sensation of a mental health crisis for him. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. I do want to hear your thoughts on Neuralink. So I want to dive into the story a little bit more, but we'll discuss it more here tomorrow on the show. But you've been probably following Elon Musk's developments with Neuralink. Tons of research, incredible technological advancements in the horizon, but also already being achieved. Well, what happened was yesterday, Elon Musk posted on X, he said the first human received an implant from Neuralink yesterday and is recovering well. Initial results show promising neuron spike detection. So what's Neuralink? Neuralink is a fascinating technological advancement that is experimental. Now, what happened in May of last year is the U.S. Food and Drug Administration actually approved initial trials for Neuralink to be used on humans for trials. We're seeing how it goes. So these people are volunteering, and the hope is that it can help in making it so that people can have ease of pain, ease of function. Isn't that something that we all want? But the question is, just because we can, should we? Uh, Reading a report from CNBC News, it says Neuralink's brain implant aims to help people with traumatic injuries operate computers using only their thoughts. This is technology of the future. This is one of those pieces of technology that people thought would never exist or perhaps hoped for. I I remember when I was a teenager, one of my favorite movies was Xenon Girl, the 21st Century. And in that movie, they had screens where they looked at each other via video and had video calls from space. 
And I thought it was the most incredible thing. And as a little girl, I thought that that would never, ever be something we would ever see in terms of development and technology. I just thought it was incredible that I could just have my own device right here and have a face-to-face video call with someone. And in that case, it was from outer space, but here in our case, just in general, a friend, a family member. It's an incredible technological advancement. It's an awesome tool. But now this is a new horizon. Actually implanting technology into the human body. What are your thoughts? I'm going to dive into this more as the week progresses. I still kind of want to gather some of my thoughts. And the church has a whole document that it released earlier this year on actually using technology to alter the human body. Now, key areas I think are important is that we fundamentally cannot mutilate the body. We can't change our maleness and femaleness. We can't uh, sever our ability to procreate. In other words, we can't sterilize ourselves. But where does advancement or, quote, enhancement enter into the conversation? It is intriguing and interesting. And where's the line when it comes to both experimentation especially human experimentation. And where is the line where we say, okay, we can, but should we? There's a lot behind the entire conversation with Neuralink. And in the days, months, years to come, more than ever before, we're going to have to figure out for ourselves where our line is when it comes to technology how comfortable we are with how often we use technology in what ways inside our own bodies. I don't think tech is going anywhere when it comes to the fusion between the human person and tech. As of right now, just looking at it, it's a huge no for me personally. There's a huge level of discomfort and fear, perhaps even you could say there, But then there are other people who say, this is amazing. Let's experiment. Let's try. But is the human person meant to be an experiment? I'll ask that question again. Is the human person meant to be an experiment? And if so, how far do we go? Obviously, just like with any drug or alcohol, we're not supposed to impair our reason. But what if someone's reason has already been impaired? What about living experimentation? This actually gets into a whole other area where we're seeing the last year there's been massive international debate as we've seen this push to redefine what brain dead is to not actually be brain dead, which is frightening. And why is it frightening? Because if we declare someone as brain dead who actually isn't brain dead and we redefine terms, What they're doing is they're leaving the door open for human experimentation, especially for things such as Neuralink and other types of experimentation. But again, just because we can doesn't mean we should. Where's the line drawn when it comes to human experimentation? Do you have a line? Do you know what the church teaches regarding sterilization? Do you know what the church teaches with regard to impaired reason? Do you know what the church teaches with regard to 
ordinary versus extraordinary means to stay alive. If you're in a comatose state, if you're in a car accident, if you're to face unthinkable medical situations. This is what I think all comes into the conversation behind technology and whether we should, whether we could, whether we can, whether we ought to. And people may say, well, it can, it could potentially cure something such as Parkinson's. It could potentially cure a person who has the inability to walk. It could allow someone to use the computer, in this case, who couldn't otherwise use the computer by operating it with their mind. Fascinating. I'm with you. I think it's absolutely riveting. But should we? And so I really am interested to hear your thoughts on it. Have you thought about this? One of the questions my mom has asked my cousins and my siblings and I over the last couple of years, and I think that she really has always touched on something key that we need to be thinking about. What's the end game of artificial intelligence? Because this is the fusion of AI with the human body, and it will only continue continue to advance. What's the end game? Because if you look at people who are creating AI, even if you look last year at the rift occurred that occurred between Elon Musk and some of his closest buddies at some of the top, the top media companies in the world who are working with AI, is he has actually started to have, from what we see, a moral compass and a level of discomfort as people seek to AI to be not just a god, to them that they worship, but the God to take over, to enter into population control, to create their own God, their higher deity. This is why this whole conversation about Neuralink, technological advancements, not just in medicine, but technology, it really is a question of faith. Where is the line drawn? What are we comfortable with? How do we approach conversations such as these? And do we see, as my mom's asked, what's the end game? How far, not just are we willing to go, but Do we see what we're participating in and how far these brilliant individuals are going in what they're creating and what they hope to achieve with their own creation? And some people will say, well, only God will allow things to go so far. No, there are tons of things out there. We could talk about human cloning. We could talk about surrogacy, things that we can do that God has allowed us to do out of freedom and out of the gift of intellect and a great human capabilities, but that doesn't mean we can. That doesn't mean it works into the moral framework of who the human person is, created in the image and likeness of God, created us with free will so that we can freely choose Him and come to love Him. And how do we find love for Christ, love for ourselves, and love for our neighbor as we navigate the latest technological advancements of our time? More on that. Love to hear from you. I'll keep an eye out as we dive more into the topic later this week. Up next is a family rosary across America. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Do you ever have questions about what photos you post on social media? Do you question your judgment? Photos of yourself, a friend, your kid, or maybe even someone else's? With the rise in deep fakes and AI advancements, it might be time to consider what your social media ground rules are, if you have any, for photos and what you're comfortable with based on the latest technological advances. So join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.